Yes, yes. So go to Adelaide's play. <laughs> but. I have to be Connor for John. LOL. Um, yeah, but basically, tonight, we're going to be talking about something very interesting, which the funny thing is that there's like four main passages in the New Testament that deal with what we're talking about tonight, and I have managed to basically accidentally hit three of the four. <laughs> like, literally not even intentional, but we hit it in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, because we were doing Ephesians. We hit it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because we were doing a 1 Corinthians series. And I picked 1 Peter, because I was like, you know what, I don't know 1 Peter that well. I'd like to study it. And then we hit the third passage of the four. <laughs> yeah, right, I swear, man. Um, but tonight we're talking about gender roles. And this is going to be, you know, every passage in the Bible, it approaches gender roles from a slightly different angle. So Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 talks about um, gender roles in the context of a family. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it really emphasizes the distinction between the genders more so than their relationships. And then this passage that we're going through now is the relationship between a husband and a wife specifically. And then the passage that we haven't hit yet, but we, based on our trajectory, probably will, it addresses gender roles in the church. So we're hitting kind of a different flavor of that. And the difficulty of this is that, like, raise your hand real quick if you're married. So none of us are married, right? The closest most humorous part about all of this. <laughs> right? Like literally. So like the closest thing to married in this room are Drew and Taylor who have been dating for how long have you guys been dating? Like, two, two. Almost three. Almost three years? Yeah. yeah. It's almost three. Two point two. Two point two. They're the brother and sister in Christ that have known each other the longest in this room. Basically sure, I'll I'll, I'll roll with that. Yeah. So for the most part, most, like, you know, Miles and I are not dating, and other than basically the adults in this room, no one has any business dating. No, yeah, Miles and I are both single. I guess you that I apparently... Them. Yeah, exactly. None of you guys should be dating. Um, Honestly, just don't. Just don't. Yeah, you guys, yeah. Not worth it. Not a good idea. So you might be thinking to yourself, if I'm not even going to be dating for like another five years, or if maybe if your parents have their, say, 10 years, then why, six years, then why am I having to learn about gender roles in marriage? And I just want to tell you guys right now, there's a couple reasons why it's so important for you guys to be learning this. Thing number one is that this is one of the most hated things in the entire Bible. You're going to have people who call themselves Christians and they will tell you the exact opposite of what God says about this. And they will do it very, very eagerly and very, very pointedly and aggressively. If you go into your churches or, well, actually, unfortunately, yeah, your churches. But if you go into schools, you're going to have a bunch of teachers who are telling you that like this is the big stain on the Bible. This is the worst thing about Christianity. And they're going to try to package this and hand it to you as like subjugation and sexism and all of that good stuff. And so part of the reason that I'm talking to you about this is because right now you're going to hear so much garbage about gender roles. And I like I can't have the church be the one place that's not willing to talk to you about it. Like, the one place that knows the proper way to address this stuff is also the one place that's, like, tiptoeing around it. None of your school teachers are. So I'm talking to you guys about it because this is going to be conflicted. 
I'm also talking to you guys about this because the time to learn how to be a proper husband slash wife is not five years into your marriage when everything's falling apart. Like two people who've been married and they very clearly have no idea how to function in a marriage relationship because all of their youth pastors and their parents and their pastors and their teachers were like, I don't want to talk about that. And they were never learning about about it. They were never working on it beforehand. And so now they're in a marriage relationship and congratulations, 60 of your 70 years of life, or definitely not, 60 of your 80 years of life are just absolute garbage because you have no idea how to function in this relationship because everyone in your life wasn't talking to you about it. I don't want you guys to be there. The time to prepare for things is not five years after they've happened, it's beforehand. And basically, when we're talking about what you're supposed to be like as a husband and as a wife, what I'm actually talking about is what should you be like as a man and as a woman. And the reason that it's important for you guys to learn this now is because this is what you need to spend the rest of your life learning how to be. Even if you'd never get married, this is a passage about what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? And it's obviously in the context of a marriage because most people are going to get married, But the lessons that you learn here are crucial everywhere in your life. This is essentially God saying, hey, this is my plan for you. And you should be trying to morph yourself to this. Like I'm very, very single, but also I have applied this passage very much in a whole lot of different ways in my life. So as we're talking about this, another thing too, um, obviously I'm going to Texas next week because my sister's getting married. And... um, um, they're, they're kind of on my mind. So this is basically going to be a, a message that involves Julianne and Canon a whole lot. So just be prepared for that. But I'm just going to actually start reading and then we're going to get into this. But um, uh, get, get ready for the beginning of the things that you're not going to like from this message. Um, I, I'm not apologizing. So 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, witnessing through marriage. Before I actually start, who can remind me what 1 Peter is about? What, what's like the main thrust of 1 Peter? What are we learning about? It's been a, the reason I'm asking is because it's been a hot second since we've done our like regu- regularly scheduled programming. So we need to rejog our minds and make sure that we're kind of in the right mode. What's 1 Peter about? I'm going to give you a hint. It, they're, they're, part of, it might be part of the time. Well, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Witnessing. What does it mean to witness, Adelaide? To tell people about God. Yeah. So witnessing is basically when you share the gospel with your life. And it involves talking to people and actually like verbally sharing the gospel. But it's how do you live like a Christian? How do you live in your government? How do you live in your society? How do you live in your relationships? How do you function so that your testimony and your gospel witness has value? How do you live as a witness? Like First Peter is basically an entire book about living out the gospel. And so he's going through and he's listing all of these things that if you do them, you will stand out. And if you function in marriage properly, you will stand out. If you function as a man or as a woman properly, you will stand out because people don't do this. People don't want to do this. The things that I'm about to talk to you about are unpopular. The things that I'm about to talk to you about are difficult. And if you do them anyway, first of all, your life is going to be so much better. Your marriage is going to be so much better. There is marriage after marriage where they don't do this and it just falls apart. But the reason that God is giving this to us is because God knows best. 
And when God says, hey, this is the way that I want you to function, he's not this cosmic killjoy who's like, man, how can I make their lives more difficult? He's looking at you and he loves you. And he's saying, I want their lives to not be unnecessarily miserable. Let me tell them how to do that. So when you're reading these passages, you need to understand that this is not God putting you in a box, telling you the things that you don't want to hear. This is God saying, I made the world. I designed life. This is how you live it to the best. So your life is going to be significantly better if you obey this, but also your gospel witness is going to be specifically better if you obey this. So now that I've tried to ease it about as much as I can, uh, first point, wives are humble and submissive. And there's the hard pill to swallow. <laughs> that sentence is, is going to be <laughs> the most difficult thing uh, of the entire night tonight. But let me read these, this section. So it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. Boy, do we not like that. <laughs> So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Boy, do we not like that. Uh, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the thing about this is that gender roles is one of those things that the Bible teaches more clearly than just about anything else. Like, it's actually astonishing the amount of clarity that it has. But the reason that there's so much controversy about this is because it's such a hated doctrine. Like, no one wants to hear this. No one wants to hear, submit to your husbands. No one wants to hear, as Sarah submitted to Abraham, calling him Lord. No one wants to hear that. Like, that is not at all an enjoyable thing. I'm just going to tell you guys right now, as a man, I don't like this. Like... Like, I'm going to completely be level with you for a moment. There are people who, there are parts of the Bible that they do not like. My dad, for him, when he was my age, he could not stand predestination. Like the stuff that we were talking about earlier in First Peter, the fact that God has chosen people for himself before the foundation of the world. My dad can't stand that or couldn't stand that. He didn't believe it. He didn't want to believe it. And then he's in a seminary class listening to his professor teach through like Ephesians 1 and 2. And he's like, ah, oh, darn it. The Bible says it. There's no getting around this. And then he changed his view. And one of the things that my dad raised me to do growing up is that when I don't like something the Bible says, I don't change the Bible, I change myself. And one of the things that I say to people so often is that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is what we do when the Bible says something that we don't like. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. For me, it's this. This is a section of the Bible that is so difficult for me. I don't like it. I have never liked it. And it is actually difficult for me to even teach this to you. And part of my own journey and maturity has been getting to the point where this is not such a difficult thing for me. And I have grown in that, but I'm just going to be level with you. It's 
the, that's just the way that it is. The Bible is going to say things that you don't like, and it's going to be different for each of us. And I don't want to put, like, I could come up here and put on a face and pretend that I'm just completely down with everything the Bible says, that I never have any doubts about anything, that everything's easy. Like, I could do that. I'm not going to. This isn't a section of the Bible that is genuinely very difficult for me. And I'm going to, as a person standing up here, I'm an example of what I do when the Bible says something that I don't like. This message is what I do when the Bible says something that I don't like. I stand by it. I believe it. I obey it. And I trust God. So for me personally, I'm like reading this and it's saying, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. Basically what that just described is that if you are married to a dude who does not care at all what the Bible says, if you are married to a dude who is domineering, who is unkind, who is prideful, who is jerkish, if you are married to that person, the way that you respond is to win him over without a word by your conduct, by your gentle and submissive behavior. That's really hard. Like, if you actually think about what that means, if you actually think about the way that that plays out, that is so hard. Like, I just want you to imagine this times that you've been in situations with people where they were wronging you, where they were insulting you. And I actually want you to think of a time, like, who can tell me? What's the time that, like, someone's wronging you or insulting you and you responded by getting angry? Ella? Yeah, your siblings. Happens all the time, I'm sure. Happened with me with my siblings. Uh, Parker, I saw your hand. Friends at school almost every day. Friends at school almost every day? Yeah. Adelaide? I just feel it. I just feel it. Rough. <laughs> no, yeah, but like, is that a pleasant experience? Do you usually respond by just taking it on the chin, smiling, and then being nice to them? No. I see a bunch of shaking heads. No, that's, that is not the knee jerk reaction. And one of the things that I, that like, I, I do not envy women for that reason. Cause for me, if I get married and I'm like, my wife is terrible and she's super mean and like jerkish, like that sucks. But if a gal marries a terrible guy, um, there is a much greater risk. Like a dude can just kind of dominate people and yeah. Okay, if your husband is abusive, can you divorce him? Biblically, no. So the biblical grounds for divorce are adultery and death. Um, uh, besides that, Paul says that if a person is not a Christian and they choose to divorce you, you can't control their behavior um, and you let them go. So the Bible allows for two situations where you can divorce someone. One is if they're cheating on you. Two is if they're not a Christian and they divorce you. But the Christian can never be the one who initiates it. So what I'm not saying is that if your husband is abusive, you should just go right back to him and live with him anyways. There are people that that's how they interpret that. And those people are straight up idiots. Like, no, if your husband is abusive, he should be incarcerated, but also don't live with him. Don't go in a situation where your physical harm is at risk, but also you're still married to him, which means that you can't go and get remarried to someone else. So that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. But by the way, one of the reasons that I'm teaching you this, by the way, is because if you understand that even if the dude's abusive, you still can't divorce him, is that going to help you be a little bit more careful about who you marry? Right? It's kind of important. And that's one of the reasons I'm teaching you guys this too, is that you need to be looking for people that, and that uh, embody these characteristics in their life.
So I want to tell you guys about Julianne and Cannon. Julianne and Cannon are getting married, you know, next week. And Julianne, like one of the reasons that this specific thing is so difficult for me is because Julianne is my sister. So Julianne is legit a genius. I have never met anyone with as much raw intelligence as Julianne. Julianne is capable. She is ambitious. She is extremely hardworking. And when I look at her, like, have you ever met people? Or I should say, have you ever heard the saying, like, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up? And like, people say that, but it's really not true. It's like, no, you really couldn't. You, uh, you are definitely not smart enough to be whatever you want to be. Your bar is a little bit lower. Like, people will tell you that, they're lying. No. Like, there are a lot of times where you say that to someone, and it's actually not true. They couldn't be anything they wanted to be. Julianne's one of those people that she could be anything she wanted to be. I used to joke in high school that if she wanted to, she could have the entire United States subjected to totalitarian dictatorship in 20 years. <laughs> like, Julianne's that kind of person. Yeah, right? We're on our way, guys. But Julianne is so incredibly capable. And I would read these passages and I would think to myself, am I really supposed to look at Julianne and say, oh yeah, you got to submit to a guy? And it's like, I hated that. But Julianne is getting married to Canon. And one of the things that I've been able to watch is Julianne and Canon and the discussions that they've been having and their preparation for, for getting married. And we were talking to them about their premarital counseling questions. And one of the questions was, are you both going to work? Who's going to work? Who's going to stop working? If you have kids, what's going to happen? And Julianne straight up was like, yeah, so even if we don't have kids, as, long, as soon as we are financially able for me to not work, I'm going to stop working. I'm just going to be a stay-at-home wife. I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. We're going to foster. We're going to have kids. But as soon as I'm able to stop working, I'm going to stop working. Which, like, for, for you guys, you guys don't necessarily know Julianne the way that I know Julianne. And I would have never expected those words to come out of her mouth. <laughs> Absolutely never. Which I'm not saying that, like, every married couple, the woman needs to not work and be a stay-at-home. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying, like, that's crazy, man. Julianne is a professional. Like when you talk about strong, independent woman, like someone who could like really make it in a man's world kind of thing, like it's literally Julianne. And she's like, no man, as soon as I'm able to stop working and be stay at home, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I'm just like, what? Are you serious? Another one was she's in premarital counseling with these people. And for Julianne, for her entire life, who's been the primary spiritual authority in her life? Yes, that is correct. Julianne's primary spiritual authority in her entire life up until now has been my dad, has been our dad. Where even though, and that doesn't mean that like my dad owns her or that my dad tells her what to do. Like Julianne's lived away from the house for I think four or five years now. And during that time, she's been autonomous, but she's still been, you know, under the authority of my dad in a sense. And in about a week and a half, that's going to change. And one of the things that they were talking about is that for Julianne, when she needs to make a phone call and when she's having a hard time, the first person that she calls isn't my dad anymore. It's Canon. And like, that's a mental switch that she's making. And here's the thing that makes that even crazier. We always used to look at Julianne and be like, man, who in the world is Julianne going to marry? She's this brutally intelligent, extremely ambitious, extraordinarily hardworking person, really capable. And we always thought that she'd be like, have to marry someone who's like intellectually her equal. And we were always thinking, where in the world is any guy going to come out of anywhere who could possibly be on her level? 
I have yet to meet one. And we're like thinking, man, what's going to happen? And then she marries Canon, which I love Canon. But Canon is not that kind of guy. <laughs> like, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I haven't met that kind of guy. But Canon's not the kind of guy that any of us would have expected Julianne to date or marry. And even when we first started hearing about them potentially dating, what I said was, selfishly, I want Canon as a brother-in-law, but also he is not at all the kind of person that I would anticipate for Julianne. And, like, Cannon is this, you know, Texas guy who worked on power lines, and he would, like, go into dive bars and just perform live music as he went from town to town to town in Texas. Like, that's this kind of guy. Not at all the office space PhD genius guy at all that any of us would have expected for Julianne. And in that situation, almost everyone who would look at their situation would say, oh, yeah, obviously Julianne's going to be the one in charge. She's the one who's more fit to that role but that's not at all what they've been doing. And instead, the person that for me has made this such a hard passage for me to actually like swallow follows it to a T, which is insane to me. Like if you made a list of the characteristics that, you would make, that would make you think, oh, you shouldn't follow this passage, it's Julianne. And yet she's doing it. And like, I could keep talking about Julianne. I'm not going to. But the thing is, like when you look at this, what you see is humility. What you see is someone who says, okay, you're doing the wrong thing. You're still in charge. You are still the leader and I'm still going to submit to you. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to yell it out. I'm not going to try to force you to do the right thing. I'm not going to try to force you to be the leader that you should be. Even though you're failing, it's not my job. My job is to submit. My job is to be humble. My job is to love you. And this is very closely related to the story of Abigail that we talked about back in summer camp, where Abigail did exactly this with Nabal, where Nabal was this overbearing, foolhardy, arrogant jerk, and Abigail was smarter than him, Abigail was more effective than him, Abigail was wiser, Abigail was the better person by 10 miles, and yet Abigail was quiet and submissive and kind, and she didn't have a yelling match with Nabal, she spoke to him kindly and then God killed him. <laughs> and that's the thing. When you look at this passage, what you're having to acknowledge is that God is the one who changes your husband when he's being disobedient. Paul Washer jokes that one day he wants to write a book called How to Live So That God Kills Your Husband. But like, when you think about that, he, tells a, he gives an example that I actually really like. Have you guys ever seen those castles, like those old medieval castles? Have you ever seen those staircases, like those winding staircases that go up the side of the castle and when you get to the top, it's this really narrow door? Do you know why that is? So the reason that the door is that narrow at the very top of those staircases is because the castles are made to be under siege. So if someone breaches the bottom floor, everyone runs up to the top floor. And since it's such a narrow passage, people can only make it up the stairs one person at a time. So one person at the top of that stairwell with a spear can defend it from an army. Because 20 people can't come up that stairwell at once, one can. And so it's like, for example, if you're in a marriage relationship, imagine a woman trying to like, 
fight up these staircases and have a battle with her husband, and her husband's at the top of the staircase, you know, fending her off, and she's trying to get through, and then she's looking back behind her, and she's like, God, deal with my husband. And God's standing behind her in this one-person staircase, and she's like, God, why aren't you dealing with my husband? And God's like, because you're in the way. No, God, I don't want to get out of the way. What are you going to deal with my husband? Get him to do what he's supposed to do. And God's like, get out of the way. Get out of the way, and I'll deal with him. And that's kind of the situation that this is in. And think about the humility in that. It's like, okay, it's not my job to fix him. It's my job to do what I'm supposed to do. And that's not just helpful in a marriage situation. That's helpful anywhere in life. Because in your life, you need to have a posture of what am I supposed to do in this situation? It's not my job to change you. It's my job to be faithful. It's my job to be obedient. And then I'm going to be judged, not for how you handled your position, but for how I handled mine. And that is an attitude that even up till now, I've seen modeled with Julianne and Cannon, which has been awesome. And so you see, it talks about, um, do, not be a, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's like, who am I living for? Am I living for God? Am I living for a person? Am I living for my pleasure? But the important thing to see there is that what's more important, the heart or externals? The heart. Yeah, yeah. What's more important, a person, a woman's character or the way that she looks? <laughs> character. Yeah. Proverbs 30, uh, 31 says, um, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who feels, fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And so the important thing to think about for that is if you're a girl, what's more important that you learn to be as attractive as possible or that you work on your character? <laughs> the character is more important, right? And then also for the guys in the room, what should you be looking for? Someone who's smack dab attractive or someone with good character? Because give it 20 years and the smack dab attractiveness is not going to be there anymore. Right? So you're learning not only what should I be, but what should I be looking for? And now you'll notice that we spent a whole lot of time on the first point and much less on the second point. And the reason for that is because Paul gives six verses to the first point and one verse to the second. So I'm actually just following his pattern. So this is in a context where right after Paul talks about being submissive to authorities and the government and being submissive to your boss, then he goes into, okay, and part of that is wives be submissive to your husband. And now he adds a caveat. Wives are supposed to be humble and submissive and husbands are supposed to be gentle and loving. Because the issue is that you tend to run into two situations with how people approach this passage. You have one group of people who say, how dare you say gender roles? How dare you say there's a distinction? How dare you say that the wives are supposed to submit to their husbands? Don't you realize that husbands are toxic tyrants? Toxic masculinity? You're trying to subjugate women? Don't you see? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so you have one group of people that just throws this out entirely and they completely get rid of the specific roles that God's given. And that's how they botch it. But then you have another group of people that they treat wives like maids you get to sleep with. And that is how they view the marriage relationship. It's like, oh, I'm marrying someone who's going to get to take care of my laundry. They're going to make food for me. You know, my, uh, my youth pastor, when I was in seventh grade, a guy named Josh Seibert, he said, 
that if you think that a wife's place is to be barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen, that's not gender roles, that's chauvinism. <laughs> but that's how a lot of people view it. You have some people who throw it out entirely, and you have other people that are like, oh, I'm totally down to have a female slave in my house. And that's wrong, too. It's really wrong. And so Paul is saying, women, you need to submit to the authority of your husbands. And then he takes a break. He actually breaks away from the entire flow that he's had for the last chapter and a half. And he says, let me specify. Husbands, get your crap together. You have a job in this. Wives are not your servants. They are equals. In Galatians 3, 26 through 28 It says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, a woman is not worth less than a man, and a woman is not there for the sake of the man. They are equals. They are equal in value. They are equal before God. And so it's very important that Paul adds this caveat, sorry, Peter adds this caveat, and he says, don't think for a moment that this is about subjugating your wives. Instead, in verse 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. If you're wondering what weaker vessel means, go to a weightlifting and watch the difference between male bodybuilders and female bodybuilders. Holy cow. Um, anyways, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered, which let me just read that last section again, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That is insane. Like the weight of what was just said in that verse is absolutely insane. One of the most fundamental realities of the Christian experience is that you get to talk to God, that you have a relationship with God. And when God says, men, if you do not treat your wives in the way that you are supposed to, I will not listen to your prayers. Ask me for the life of your child. Ask me for things to go well at work. Ask me to to cure the sickness that I've put onto you. I will not listen to your prayers because you are not treating your wife the way that I told you to. And think like there is nothing else in the entire Bible that God says, if you do this, I won't listen to your prayers. But God says to husbands, if you mistreat your wives, I will not listen to your prayers. You think that you get to abuse someone that I've given to you as a gift? You think that you get to abuse someone that I have saved? You think that you get to abuse and mistreat my daughter? No. You do that and I will cut you off from myself. Like being a husband is an extraordinarily dangerous position to be in. Being a leader is an extraordinarily dangerous situation to be in because God takes that seriously. And think again about Abigail and Nabal. Nabal mistreated his wife and God killed him. God brought David along and as soon as he was in a situation where Abigail was going to get a baller of a husband, he was like, perfect, Nabal, you had your chance. She's getting someone who deserves her now. And Abigail was someone who followed the first six verses, and so God took care of the rest. But guys, make sure that you're not the kind of person that God kills. And this is something that I've seen with canon. One of the things that Julianne and I talked about when I was first taking over the youth ministry is that I am not the most spiritually faithful person on the youth ministry team. I'm not the smartest person on the youth ministry team. 
I'm not the funnest person on the youth ministry team. I'm not the most energetic. I'm not the most interesting. I'm not the most spiritually faithful. And yet, I'm the one in charge. And one of the things that we run into is that there are some people who think that because you're the one in charge, you are the most valuable member of the team. And that is not the case. And part of being a leader is having the humility to say, I'm not the most capable person on this team. This is just my position. And then I'm going to take feedback. And I've seen that from Julianne and Cannon. Because on one hand, you have Julianne, who's been extremely submissive and is posturing herself for that in all of this. But Cannon is looking at Julianne and he's recognizing, okay, I'm not as capable as she is. Which, he's right. I've still yet to meet someone that is. And he's looking at her and, she, and he's like, man, she's way smarter than I am. She's far more logistically talented. She's way more ambitious. She's way better with money. And she doesn't, and he's not looking at her and saying, I'm the leader. I'm going to tell you what to do. Get on it. Instead, he's been taking feedback. And as they're talking about premarital counseling and they're making decisions for their marriage, Cannon has even referenced the fact that the vast majority of what they're doing were ideas that Julianne had, where they were working through it and Cannon literally just took her advice. And I've seen this. Because again, we talked about in the first six verses that when the wife is doing that, it's humility. When the husband is doing this, it's humility. And humility is extremely important. And humility is something that even though I'm not a husband, I have applied this passage where it's talking about showing honor to the people that you have authority over, being humble, being gentle. So very important stuff. Each of us is supposed to be looking at these passages and saying, hey, this might not be easy. This might not be what I like, but this is what God calls me to. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work towards it. For you guys, you're not married right now, but you need to think about the fact that, oh, okay, if I marry a, a crap wagon, um, that's a problem. So you need to look at people and be like, hey, as a single man, are you living out this humility? Uh, or if you're a guy, you should be looking and saying, as a single woman, are you living out this humility? Because if the answer is no, I don't want to chain myself to you. Golly gee willikers, is that a bad idea? But also you should be guys should be working on becoming this kind of person. Your job as junior hires and high schoolers is to develop yourself into the adults that you should be. So with that, I'm going to pray this out. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word and thank you that you have explained to us how we ought to live life. And it might not be necessarily what we prefer. It might not necessarily be what makes the most sense to us, but you know life better than we do. And Lord, when you are giving us instructions, it is not our job to look at other people and to say, oh, this is what you should be doing. It is not our job to force other people to fulfill their responsibilities. It is our job to fulfill our responsibilities. We will not be judged for how someone else lived in the position that you gave them. We will be judged for how we lived in the position that you gave us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be humble, that whether we are men or women, that we would be humble towards you and towards others, and that that would pervade the way that we function in leadership and the way that we function in submissiveness. Lord, I pray for the women among us that you would help them, help them to see this and to actually have it be attractive, that they would learn how to be humble, that they would learn what it means to submit to a husband, to submit to their leaders, and that you would show them the beauty in that. And Lord, I pray for the men in this room, that you would help them to see the value in a woman who is able to do that, and that you would help them to become the kind of men that are gentle leaders, to become the kind of men who respect and who love and who value women and do not degrade them. I pray that you would help us to see the value in being the people that you want us to be and that you would give us the strength to actually live it through. And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.